2: Welcome to Money Talks. Today, a special edition as Americans vote in the midterm elections. We'll look at how the U.S. economy is doing and how that might play into the midterms and the opportunity zones that were meant to help poorer American areas.
1: They're chosen by governors who know their communities well and not by federal planners with a formula-based spreadsheet.
2: Where is actually benefiting? I'm Simon Long, international editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Money Talks. First, it's the midterm elections in America when voters will decide who will control the two houses of Congress and elect new state governors and legislator. And of course, it will be seen as some sort of referendum on how the president is doing. Ryan Avent is the free exchange columnist at The Economist and joins us now from Washington to talk about the American economy and how it's playing into the election campaign. Hello, Ryan. Hi, Simon. And the impression from the recent growth and unemployment numbers is that the economy is doing very well. Is that fair enough?
1: I think that's fair enough. The recent GDP figures have been pretty strong. The economy seems likely to to have grown more than 3% this year. And then the the jobs numbers have also been, uh, you know, terrifically strong and stable. The economy is adding 200,000 jobs a month still. The unemployment rate is down at 3.7% it's taken a while for those figures to translate into growth in wages, but that's beginning to happen as well. So I think, you know, overall, things look look as good as they have in, in more than a decade.
2: But from the coverage here, the impression one would have is that the election campaign has not been dominated by this success story, but by other issues, notably immigration.
1: Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think one might expect that Republicans who control all houses of government would really be running hard on the economy, uh, and they haven't been for the most part. And I think that's, that's probably for a few reasons. You know, one, I think, is still that if you look at polling data, a lot of people don't give full credit for uh, this growth to, uh, to Donald Trump, which is fair enough. I mean, the recovery is now in its 10th year. And the trajectory of growth, you know, may have sort of tilted up a bit uh, over the past year, but it's not fundamentally different from what was happening under under Barack Obama. So I think that's part of it. And then, I, you know, also, even at the best of times, Trump supporters really haven't been, uh, you know, a, as motivated by month in month out growth as they have by sort of blood and soil type issues related to their status in America. And so that really is what the campaigns have been hitting on over the past month.
2: But I suppose at the very least, it must have blunted some Democrat criticisms of the president and made it hard for them to argue that, for example, his confrontational trade policies are having a bad effect.
1: Yes, that's right. It certainly would be much easier for the Democrats in their campaigns if the economy were not doing that well. Uh, And it's, you know, there's some debate about economists about how much credit uh, the president actually deserves. Uh, The trade stuff certainly doesn't seem to be helping. And you do get you know, stories from parts of the country where trade sanctions are biting, where the Chinese are no longer buying soybeans grown by American farmers and things of that nature. But it doesn't seem to have really dented the macroeconomy as a whole course, the other big policy uh, that, that Trump has signed into to, to place over the past two years is the tax bill. I think ordinarily that would be something Democrats would be hitting hard because of the way it was tilted in favor of the rich. But so long as the economy is growing, jobs are being created and wages are going up for, for sort of the typical worker, that really blunts that line of criticism as well.
2: And another big policy change he's made was, of course, to, to revoke Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. How's that playing with voters?
1: Well, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, I think that people don't necessarily see that as, a, as an issue related to kind of the economy as a whole, rather than, you know, sort of security of their household and, and things of that nature. It does seem to be something that Republicans are nervous about being attacked on. If they've been running hard on the untrue claim that Republicans are the party that's in favor of protecting people who have pre-existing conditions, which would you know ordinarily make it difficult for them to get insurance. Again, that's not right. But I think the fact that they're running those ads suggests that they feel vulnerable on the issue.
2: It's a difficult question, but on the whole, do you think President Trump is seen as having delivered on the promises he made on the campaign trail?
1: Well, the way things are in America today, Simon, is that there are two different realities. And I think that if you talk to people who are firmly in, uh, in the president's base, they would say absolutely. He's delivered on on what he said he would do. He's gotten tough at the border. He's sort of gotten tough with the Chinese. Uh, he's passed in a, a growth boosting tax cut and gotten rid of Obama's burdensome regulations. If you talk to people on the other side of the political spectrum, they might say that that he's delivered on on sort of the promise to uh, you know to dehumanize parts of of the American electorate and things of that nature. But that. His economic policies have not really fundamentally changed the situation except to perhaps worsen America's debt situation and to tilt the playing field a little bit more in favor of the rich. So, they, you know, it's it's a question of, of what side you on and what you want to believe. Uh, you know, I think our position would be that he has done some things that he said he would do, delivered on the tax bill and on repealing regulation, but that— The strength of the American economy at this moment is in large part based on what's happened over the past 10 years and things outside of Donald Trump's control, including what the Federal Reserve has been doing.
2: Can we finally put the American economy in in some sort of global perspective? I suppose at the very least, one can say that the American economy is growing faster than the rest of the rich worlds. Is it somehow now decoupled? It
1: is certainly growing faster than than most advanced economies. I mean, we've seen a slowdown, a worrying slowdown in growth uh, in places like the euro area. Um, it also looks a little bit more hail than a lot of the emerging world at this moment, which is has is a big departure from, from uh, recent history. I don't know about decoupling. I mean, I think the rest of the world probably wishes there were more decoupling because one of the consequences of America growing relatively quickly is that the Federal Reserve, America's central bank, is... Uh, tightening monetary policy uh, more eagerly than it otherwise would be. And that leads to a higher dollar. It leads to tightened financial conditions across the world as a whole, which ends up making life a lot more difficult for the rest of the world. And so I think probably if you ask most finance ministers, they would say they wish that American economic uh, policy and American economic situation were more in line with what the rest of the world is experiencing.
2: Ryan Avent, thank you very much. And I look forward to the next free exchange. Thank you, Simon. Next, what's going on with American Opportunity Zones? This was a Donald Trump policy to help poverty-stricken neighbourhoods, and one of the few ideas in his tax overhaul that was supported by Democrats. It offered big incentives for investors in poorer areas. But are they actually doing what they were set up to do? Samir Keynes is the Economist's US Economics Editor. Hello, Samir. Hello. Can we start with the basics? What is an Opportunity Zone?
0: An opportunity zone is a census tract, an administrative area of around 4,000, 5,000 people in, in America. And these opportunity zones have been designated places where if you invest in those zones under certain conditions, you can get very, very generous capital gains tax cuts. So it's essentially a tax break for investors investing in these places. Because there's this idea that in America, not everyone has shared in, in prosperity, some places have been left behind. And so you need to remedy that.
2: So presumably, the opportunity zones are meant to be left behind places, disadvantaged places. But who gets to designate which ones are chosen?
0: States were allowed to pick which of their census tracts could be designated as opportunity zones. They weren't allowed to pick whichever one they wanted. There were certain conditions. They had to be above a certain poverty threshold. But that poverty threshold wasn't particularly tight. So actually, governors had 57% of American census tracts to pick from when they were designating these zones for tax breaks.
2: So that's more than half the country, in fact.
0: It is indeed. It is indeed. And they, they could pick, I think it was a quarter of the eligible ones. They could pick a state that actually had less poverty than the average census tract in, in an extreme situation.
2: One would expect from first principles, if they're given this discretion to choose amongst these poorer areas, that they would be subject to considerable political lobbying as to which one they choose. Is, is that how it's worked out?
0: One would expect that there would be a fair amount of politicking. And of course, no governor would want to admit that there had been some kind of pork barrel politics where they were, you know, rewarding their donors or, or something like that. A lot of the states had a process of public consultation where they asked, you know, people where they wanted these states to be. You know, we'll, we'll never know exactly why every single census tract was chosen That said, it does look like there are some slightly odd choices that were made. It's definitely not the case that the very poorest census tracts were chosen in every single state, which is is a reason to be suspicious, perhaps.
2: Indeed, one would expect that they were the poorest. Can you give us some examples of the sorts of places that have been chosen?
0: Yeah, so in states like Mississippi and New Mexico, Adam Looney and Hilary Gelfond of the Brookings Institute compared how distressed the places that were picked were relative to those that were eligible, and they found that in those two states, actually, they they were less distressed, and there, there are some other examples there. They also pick out some other funny places. So in, in some places, they... Made university campuses eligible, and there it will seem as though those places are very poor because students don't get counted as having any income. But you might not think that that was the original intent of the policy to effectively, you know, subsidise activity in, in universities that you might already have thought were were okay. I, I I would like to to add at this point that although this this looks suspicious and strange, there is actually a logical explanation from the state's perspective. Why did they choose these places that didn't seem to be the very poorest of the poor? And the reason is that actually, from their perspective, there are a lot of these census tracts that have been picked. They know that if they want to attract investment, they're going to be competing with lots of other places. And there's no point in offering this tax break if even after the tax break, a place is just so poor that they're not going to attract any investment anyway, right? And so that the idea might be to pick places where the marginal investment, the you know the extra investment that you get because of this tax cut, is the greatest. Obviously, it then becomes very hard to distinguish that between you know where would the most investment have been happening anyway, and therefore you know how much is, is this really just a bung to investors? Uh, but, but it's not necessarily, you know, corruption that, that's driving these funny results.
2: So the area around a university campus, for example, might be chosen because the area has good human capital and might attract investors.
0: Yeah, so so going right back to the beginnings of this this policy, the philosophy of it, the idea was that maybe you wanted to generate these clusters of activity, you wanted to uh, get the benefits of lots of different kinds of investments happening together, and and there is some evidence that suggests that you know having a good university can be a real you know a real driver of of growth in the area. Right, you've got you've got lots of very highly skilled, clever people working on innovation. You know that that can be a good thing. So perhaps these zones were picked in universities to turbocharge existing investment perhaps I don't want to be too generous it's possible and I and I think you know then the question is well well what's the policy out there that's supposed to help the poorer places that that aren't this right you, you kind of you either want to be helping the really really down and out places or you want to be helping the places that are kind of already doing okay and try and make to make them do a bit better, right? And it's not clear which of this this policy is really achieving. And I, and I think actually one of the, the the worst things about the way that this has been designed so far is that it's it's very unclear that we are going to have any way of tracking who's using this scheme and where the investment is going and how much is being used. I think if there's one thing that that the government could announce that would make people feel a bit more comfortable about it is some sense that there's going to be a way of seeing who's using it and, and for what purpose.
2: Sameer thank you very much.
0: Thanks very much.
2: And don't forget, if you want to read more on Sameer's story and analysis of the midterm elections, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. And finally, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, is America's primary financial market regulator. And so, ever since the global financial crisis, it's been at the centre of a debate about the balance between risk and regulation. This year, a new voice has joined that debate, that of Hester Pierce, who in January became one of the SEC's five commissioners. Tom Easton, our American finance editor, has been writing about Ms. Pierce and joins us now. Hello, Tom. Hi.
3: Thank you for having me on,
2: Tom. Your your piece quotes an expert using the extraordinary adjective about Ms. Pierce's appointment and her actions since, namely, exciting. How can the SEC be exciting?
3: Well, it hasn't been exciting for perhaps twenty years. I think it's been quite lost, and um, it hasn't really known how to think about markets or what it should do with markets. It's got a very broad mission, which seems to be to make them okay, which is kind of a soft, unsolvable problem. When the new administration began two years ago, there were only two out of the five commission seats filled. And I think the fact that there were so few people on it, there wasn't even a majority, reflected just the ennui and the conundrum that was attached to the SEC. So you had many, many people who who had come through there who were kind of confused about what they should be doing. Not everyone was like that, but, but many were. And so finally, in January, you have someone who's appointed who has very, very clear views of what a market should be like. And her views might not be accepted, but they're very well articulated. They've been put forward in a series of speeches. And I think at the very least, it will start a debate and a discussion on what regulation should really mean.
2: And what's her background and what are her views on the role of the SEC?
3: She went to Yale Law School, as did many prominent left and now right figures in government. She worked for the Mercatus Institute, which is a libertarian think tank. Her prior experience on the SEC was as the lawyer. Every SEC commissioner has a small little office, and they have a lawyer in that office that's kind of the most important person. And a prior commissioner who was quite libertarian was a guy named Paul Atkins, and she was his lawyer for two years. So she comes onto the commission with the tremendous knowledge of what it's done and how it operates.
2: And in this debate about the balance of risk and regulation, she is on the side of there being too much regulation, despite being now a regulator.
3: Yeah, she thinks there's way too much regulation. And she thinks, I believe, that a lot of the regulation has actually led to quite a bit of risk. You know, the rule after rule is imposed. We don't really understand what the rules are. And it channels risks in all sorts of odd places, which creates other problems. the system just becomes so complex and so murky that even though there are many, many people intending to do the right thing, wrong results are are, are produced.
2: And I see she's even been talking about the way companies manage themselves and things like gender quotas on boards, for example.
3: Right. California put in a new statute which is requiring gender representation. And she thinks that by defining one group, you dramatically increase political influence on companies, the propensity for all sorts of different groups to lobby for their groups to be part of boards, that this will not end well, that if you really emphasize performance in a company, then companies will wake up to having the most qualified people on boards. And so therefore, the system will address inequities. And by being merit-based, it will produce good people, which is what we want. And by producing good people, it'll have two Positive consequences it will reward investors, but also companies will do what they really should do, which is in the most efficient way possible, produce goods and services that people want and These are all in her speeches that she makes. This is all a very public debate it 's not something that she makes quietly she doesn't slag people it's not a personality filled things it's a series of speeches she has made articulating her views on the market
2: but as you say, it is a debate with two or more sides. Are her views likely to prevail?
3: Well, you know, it hasn't really been a debate. It's just been kind of a muddle. The SEC, in my view, in recent years, just hasn't discussed any of those things. But I think now it will. So I think, you know, you have five commissioners on it. Um, I think several have very different views than Hester Pierce. They will start putting up their views um, and there'll be a discussion. Now, the gender, the way the gender rule came through so far, is through the state of California, which has tremendous influence on uh, states, can influence what companies do. But there are ways for the SEC to get involved in that. And the discussion should exist. And, I, you know, I think that everyone should be hopeful that in response to her speech, there'll be others that are debating this issue, and it'll become a more detailed, richer discussion than kind of the reflexive discussion that has existed before, which is that companies are horrible or they're unfair or they're bending over too far backwards to please some group, that there'll be an articulated, you know, discussion. And and I think that this provides a template, even if you don't agree with her, to have that discussion.
2: More broadly, Tom, as we face the midterm elections, what is the, the mood in business at the moment, both about the SEC and more broadly about the Trump presidency?
3: So far, I think the way deregulation has worked in the United States has been twofold. One is through this kind of code, which is which is tailoring. There's been little trimming you know, on the edges to kind of pull things back, and there's been a change in tone. And businesses have liked both of those things, though it hasn't really been that profound. And of course, that allows heavily influence by lobbying. So businesses might like that, but we as pro-market people would not. We would like a clearer way of doing things through rules. When businesses come into our offices, they generally begin by asking to be on background, and then they say the following. They say, you know, of course, we don't like all the and drawing around Trump. We don't like what he says. But then they say, but when you go into many, many issues, he is following things that seem to make a quite a bit of sense. So let me give you the most important that comes up in the news now. They say, for instance, in trade. They say, look, we love free trade. We benefited from it. When there are tasks we're going to try to go around it in any way we possibly can through overseas operations but on the other hand the negotiations with china in particular have not worked during the past several administrations and we're hopeful that this approach will and we think it is justified so what? companies say privately about Trump might be very, very different than what they say publicly. But I think privately, they all seem to suggest they've been very, very positive about the change in tone, the change on the margins and the different negotiating style. So that may be a strange thing given the popular discussion, but that's what we hear in private.
2: Tom Easton, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider,